Acts chapter 4 is where we're at. In case you didn't get the memo a few minutes ago, that's still where we're at. Um, If you ever want to meet someone new, by the way, um, switch spots. Where you sit normally in church, people are creatures of habit. And so if you switch spots, you'll probably end up meeting someone new. Um, We have like an entire community group that decided to come uh, invade this section, which I absolutely love. You'll either meet someone new or tick someone off. Um, You may tick someone off that's new to you, and then you can work through trials and give glory to God and learn to love your brothers and sisters better. But man, it's awesome to to have you guys up here. Um, So sometimes you're doing something right, and, and potentially... Those of you in this room without a driver's license, you might be uh, having this happen to you more frequently than some of us older adults. But think of a time when you're doing something good and right, and all of a sudden, you get busted for it. You're trying to do something good, and you get busted for it. Here's some examples that may be true. Maybe you're trying to make breakfast in bed for mom, and you're bringing her tea up so she can enjoy her tea in her bed, and you drop her favorite mug. Maybe dad comes home and chews you out for something you're doing before you have an opportunity to say, wait a minute, I'm making something special for my sister. You're getting in trouble right in the middle of doing something good. Maybe you're using the power tools and you forgot the rule that you're not allowed to use power tools before the age of seven. And so you get chewed out for it. Anyone ever get in trouble for doing something good? Raise your hand if you've gotten in trouble for doing something good. Okay, we're gonna discuss this as, as, a, as a community group this week. How does that make you feel? How does it feel when that happens, right? I mean, it's one thing to get in trouble for doing something wrong, I mean, you kind of deserve it, right? Like you probably should be getting in trouble. But when you're trying to do something good and maybe are in the very act of doing something good and then you get busted for it, it feels a certain way, doesn't it? And we all have an opportunity right then and there to respond in a certain way. Jesus' first disciples can relate. In fact, they did a lot of good and they got busted for it over and over and over. It actually hasn't stopped. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you actually should just get used to it. You should train yourself to respond the way that Jesus tells us to respond. And we're going to see some of that in our text today. This is why Galatians exists. Galatians says this, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Why would we ever need to be told, don't give up doing good unless good things in life are uphill? Good things in life are often opposed. Sometimes you're doing the right thing and wham, you get busted for it. Do not, do not, do not give up in doing good. One of the ways you can respond is fine. I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm not going to do any more good. That's giving up. Don't give up. You're going to reap a harvest if you continue. Let me tell you two unchangeable rule, rules that, that govern the universe. And the sooner that we can grab hold of this and align ourselves with this reality, the sooner our life will begin to make sense. I'm making some really broad statements. You had a question like, wait, Dave, you think you know the key to the universe? Yes, I do. Ready? Here it is. Number one, you are passionately loved by God. I mean it. He's crazy about you. He literally will stop at nothing 
to make his way to finding you. In your notes is Isaiah 62. It says this, The Lord will hold you in his hand for all to see, a splendid crown in the hand of God. Your new name will be the city of God's delight, the bride of God. For the Lord delights in you and will claim you as his bride. Friend, whether you know it or not, whether it feels like it today or not, you are passionately loved by God. There's not, I can't think of a single thing that injects hope and promise into every one of my days that I'm alive than this, than this one statement. No matter what, I'm passionately loved by God today. But there's an opposing truth, and it's this. You are also passionately hated by God's enemy. Today. Right now. We love to talk about the love of God, don't we? But we often don't like to talk about darkness, opposition, persecution, the hate of the enemy of God. He will use all that he has to enslave you, to shame you, to keep you down. The truth is, Christian, the devil fears you. So we're passionately loved today. We're passionately hated today. And you won't understand your life without understanding these two truths. We talk about this quite a bit in this church. It served us well all through COVID times. But if you're a Christian, you are not to go looking for trouble. Follow Jesus and trouble will find you. All the time. Don't go looking for it. Why do I say that? I say that because we're to actually seek to lead a peaceable life. A quiet, simple life. Serving the Lord. We're to try to live at peace with all people. Some of you are just conflict averse and you'll run from conflict at everything. Some of you are the opposite of conflict averse. You're conflict, I don't know, loving? (laughs) Drawn to conflict? Do not go looking for trouble. Follow Jesus and trouble will find you. Right? That is, just, that is just the truth of the Christian experience. In fact, Jesus promised this would happen. Today we're going to talk about confidence. It's a lesson in confidence. And we're going to talk about confidence um, in a way that most of the time... I, we, the, the world tends to talk about, I think just Christians and people in general tend to think about confidence in a certain way, and I'm not sure it always aligns with Scripture. We're going to talk about confidence, and we're going to see some really confident men today. And as we see the story of Acts 4 unfold, we're going to sort of take an ancient reality, a scenario in some people's lives far away from us, we're going to overlay them onto our own lives in our day and age. So if I ask this question, where is your confidence? Don't answer out loud. But think about that. Where is your confidence? I think sometimes people, if they hear that question, they think I'm asking this. Where did it go? Like you used to be a confident person, but where's your confidence? But I'm not asking that. I'm asking this, not where did your confidence go, but where does your confidence rest? Where does your confidence rest? What do you rely on? What is your confidence or who is your confidence? Now, we're in church. I'm a preacher. We have our Bibles open. It's probably God, right? Yeah, that is the answer. But stopping and really thinking about that, not just because I say I'm a Christian, do my actions 
line up with my reality that my confidence, of course, is to rest in God. In our uh, title this morning, I want you to look at that word trials for a second. I want to sort of tell you the little, there's a little double ring going on in here. A trial can be a court hearing, right? But a trial can also be a hardship, a difficulty that you're going through. Here's what we're going to see in Acts chapter 4. Jesus is on trial in Acts chapter 4. And his followers, the disciples, are in a trial. They're in a hardship. They're being opposed. Okay, So both of those are realities today. Here's a little curious thing, by the way. Jesus is continually on trial. Jesus is continually on trial. Not always formally in a courtroom, but he is regularly being charged and accused and questioned. Now, here's the curious thing. It's curious that Jesus died, and yet he's still on trial and still being opposed. Why is that? It's because his death was temporary. God raised him from the dead, and he's still alive and well. That's why he's still being opposed. Jesus is not dead and gone and forgotten. Jesus is actively on trial today. Peter and John, from last week, Acts chapter 3, Peter and John had just healed a lame guy who jumps up and does his happy dance for God. Anyone do happy dances sometimes? We have happy dances in our house all the time. For whatever reason, since he was a tiny kid, whenever a movie ends, movies always end like with a swelling, like emotional or uplifting thing. And for whatever reason, Eli would jump up, tiny little kid, and he just goes into this happy dance. The entire credits, while they roll, he just goes into a happy dance. So he still will bust it out once in a while, but he's tamped it down a little bit. This lame guy jumps up and does a happy dance for God. Um, and Peter and John preached the happy news of Christ. This is the pattern of Acts. Acts chapter 2 sets this in motion. Share the good news. Share the good news. Share the good news. And share the good life. Share the good life. Share the good life. Don't ever separate those two. So the early church has this miracle witness of their beautiful community of sacrificial love and support and care for everyone in the community. And they open their mouth boldly to testify to Jesus Christ and his His resurrecting power and work in their life. So that's what's happening in Acts chapter 2. Look at Acts chapter 4, right on the heels of happy dance for God and sharing the good news. It says this, and they were speaking to the people. Who? Peter and John. That's That's who they are. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Verse 2, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Skip down to verse 5. It says, on the next day, and then verse 7, look at this. When they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Verse 2 says they were greatly annoyed. A little confession time is that I greatly annoyed leaders in my life growing up. I probably still do. Oftentimes, God takes those who greatly annoy the school teacher or the parents and uses them to preach for God. So hang in there. If you have a kid that, truth be told, they kind of annoy you sometimes. Here's a pop quiz. When is it okay to greatly annoy your leaders? When is it okay to greatly annoy your leaders? 
Here's the answer. When it greatly honors Jesus. That's it. You have freedom. You hear it here in church. I say by the name of the Lord God, you have freedom to annoy your leaders if it greatly praises Jesus Christ. Right? And that's what we're going to see in Acts chapter 4 today. Here's the scene. There's three groups of people. There's the three groups of people. And these, this group, which is called the Sanhedrin, basically is the supreme court of the land. They are the ones who handle the legal rulings and decisions for theology, for society, um, and for politics. It's the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they have the captain of the secret police there as well. Why is this group of men annoyed? Here's number one. They're annoyed because these are fishermen. These guys don't want fishermen teaching anyone anything. It's just annoying. They didn't sanction them as being teachers, therefore they shouldn't be teachers. But secondly, they're annoyed that Jesus is being honored. This is the very group who said Jesus is a criminal and should die for it. Remember, they're the ones that stirred up the crowd. So talk about a black spot on their resume as a ruling body. This brings great annoyance to them. And this question is really, really telling. By what power or by what name did you do this? That's a really good question to ask, by the way. When you see something powerful, hear something powerful, feel something powerful, remember in your mind, I am loved by God. I am hated actively today by an enemy. You ought to ask, By what name or whose power are you doing this? Pride told this group of leaders that they were the highest power of the land. Pride told the Sanhedrin in their name is where rests all the power. And so anyone doing anything in another power or another name ought to be squashed. But watch this. Their self-confidence, there's that word, Their self-confidence is misguided, isn't it? There's not a ruling body then or now on planet Earth that has a higher name or power than God Almighty. Peter and John make it clear where their confidence lies and whose authority is ultimate. So listen to where their confidence rests. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Follow along. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And all the church said, Amen. Amen. That is good news. That is the good news. The cornerstone good news. When you get busted for doing a good thing, preach Jesus. Let me say it again. When you get busted for doing a good thing, use the occasion to open your mouth and preach Jesus. 
Hey, Supreme Court, whatever else goes on here, I think we're being busted for doing a good deed to a lame guy. I think that's what's happening. By the way, the lame guy's standing right there. Ex-lame guy. He's no longer lame. He's probably still dancing and wiggling. We're getting busted for doing a good deed. Let it be known to you by whose name and by whose power we're doing this. In really, really good times, if you're successful, use that to proclaim from the mountaintops the goodness of God. If you are being busted for doing a good deed, use the occasion to open your mouth and preach Jesus. I want to have a little testimony time. It's going to be an easy testimony time. It's a raise of hand, okay? So we're trusting one another as a church family to share a little piece of ourselves. I think you would agree that there are trials that come in a variety of sizes, right? Think Starbucks cups, right? Tall, venti, grande. Um, By show of hands, if you're willing, um, I want you to think of what size trial you're facing right now. Whether you'd say it's small, it's medium, it's large or massive. Let me tell you a region that is facing probably their, their lifetime trial right now, Turkey and Syria, right? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands. I've been using the shark tank full of people to help us pray for and engage with the sheer numbers of dead people from that earthquake. We've been actively praying, particularly for Christians in that region. God, we know that you work in the very midst of trial. Would you please support these brothers and sisters? Use an opportunity to to preach the gospel. So let's say that's a large trial, obviously, right? How many of you, by show of hands, would say right now, um, the trials I'm facing, the trial I'm in, is small? Can you raise your hand if you're facing kind of a small trial? Okay. Just look around the room for a second. Thank you for doing that. Okay, put your hands down. I know this is vulnerable, but how many would say, yeah, mine, mine don't fall in the small category. These are, I'm in some medium trials right now. Would you raise your hand if you say, I'm in a medium trial. Just look around the room, church. Look around at your friends and family, okay? And then how many in this room would just say, um, I'm facing a large trial. Again, it doesn't have to be an earthquake. It doesn't have to be that massive of a thing. But I am facing some pretty big struggles and trials right now. Would you raise your hand if you're in a big trial? Look around the room. Thank you for raising your hand. I really appreciate it. Understand every single Sunday that we come in here, trials are happening. Some massive some kind of more in the everyday variety, you know you're going to get through it. But it leads us to have a heart of compassion. It leads us to say, God, we have to be filled up with your peace today or else I don't know if we can make it another Sunday. It leads us to have a lot of patience and compassion and the inquiry of how are you doing and really being ready to receive the answer to that. We have small, medium, and large trials on any given day as our little church family going on right here. If you write anything down, write this down. This is the central truth. There's space for it in your notes. It's this. It's remain confident in Jesus no matter the trial. Remain confident in Jesus no matter the trial. The truth is there are just different kinds of storms that roll in on us. 
I promise you, if you wait for the supreme trial, I promise you, if you wait for the massive storm to get ready to really depend on God, it, it, it'll, it'll, it'll just go bad. Use the small storms to train yourself, to set your mind and body and responses and thought patterns on the Lord. Use small trials, use small storms to prepare you for the big storms. And we don't train ourselves by hyping ourselves up or by getting our confidence back by saying it's going to be okay or I've got this. When I say your confidence, I'm saying no, relying on Jesus. So back to Acts chapter 4. I think the annoyance level of the Supreme Court at this point is something beyond greatly annoyed. So uh, here's greatly annoyed. Like whatever's beyond that, that's where they're starting to get to, right? Uh, It's like anger on the movie Inside Out, like just red-faced and like steam coming out of the ears. Why? Because these guys answered them so well. Hey, I'm pretty sure we're on trial for doing a good deed to this guy right here. You want to do some jumping jacks as a demonstration? He's doing pretty good. If that's what we're on trial for, let it be known. It's Jesus Christ that accomplished it. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness, the confidence of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Do you see it? Former lame guy is right there. We really don't need to submit any other evidence except, what's your name again? This guy. There it is. Verse 15, they conferred with one another saying, what should we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them not to speak uh, warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. All right, what do the leaders get right in this scenario? Let me suggest a couple of things. Uh, it's really lazy, by the way, just to say, well, we just have bad leaders, so I'm not going to follow them. I think that's a cop-out, and I think you might be leading yourself into sin. I think it's good to name what is at fault with your leaders and not submit to that rather than just say, well, our leaders are bad. What did the leaders get right? Well, they were acting within their jurisdiction. God put leaders in place to examine things like this. The Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy said this, if a miracle takes place in your midst and it leads to new teaching, you are to test it and see whether it's from God. If, in fact, that miracle happened, then, again, receive the teaching. If not, what's going to happen to those proclaiming that that was a miracle? They are to be killed. So this is no joke stuff to say, thus saith the Lord. I'm speaking for God here. Leaders are to test it. This is still true in the New Testament. Sound doctrine doesn't just happen to a church. It doesn't just cultivate in your home magically. You are to use the process of discernment. It says we're to test the spirits. What does that mean? It means what name or power is Dave preaching in right now? Who's being honored? Is Dave being honored? Is some weird foreign teaching being honored? 
So test the spirits. See that the teaching aligns with sound doctrine. This is why in Acts 2, they devoted themselves to the teaching day by day by day by day by day. If you're not doing that, you are easily duped by clever sounding ideas. That's what they got right. Now, what did they get wrong? Kind of a lot. But let's just summarize it this way. They never actually deal with the message. They aren't dealing with the claims of Jesus Christ. The evidence is right before them, the guy who's healed. And instead of dealing with the evidence or doing that, here's what they do. They seek to keep power by controlling the narrative. Does this sound at all relevant to our day and age? Keep power, consolidate power by controlling the storyline that goes out. Look back up at the text for one second. Uh, Verse 16. We cannot deny it. A good thing has gone on. We cannot deny it. So let's not even go after the message. Instead, verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people. Spread no further among the people means control the narrative. Tell, spin the story the way we want it spun so this thing doesn't get out. Oh, there's so much of this going on right now. Get to the core of the message. Here's an interesting fact. They never attempt to argue that Jesus never rose from the dead. They didn't scoff at that and say, we already, that's already been proven by science. They didn't say that. Kind of telling. Get rid of the messenger. Cancel them. And then we won't have to deal with the claims they're making about Jesus. The Supreme Court is telling these regular blue-collar workers with no college degree basically to shut up. By the authority of us, knock it off. That's it. They they really don't know how to deal with them because the people are praising God for them. The answer of Peter and John is so instructive for us. Lean in here. Verse 19. But Peter and John answered them after being told to shut up in the name of their Supreme Court. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen, you, to, to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Peter and John are so excited, they really just can't stop talking. That's what they're saying. Shut up in the name of the Supreme Court. Sorry, we kind of can't shut up about this. We just, we can't help but speak. We're compelled to do this. Let me tell you the joyful lot of a Christian. If you're contemplating becoming a follower of Jesus, here's your joyful lot. Your joyful lot is this. When Jesus is on trial, and he's on trial formally and informally all the time, he's charged, he's accused, he's questioned, you have the joyful privilege of taking the stand and opening your mouth and saying, I don't know about that stuff. You're going to have to judge for that. As for me, here's what I know to be true. That's our joyful lot. Now, what if you took the stand and you just lived a good life there in the stand? How does that work? Not very well. There's a weird little dichotomy that says, well, um, don't, you don't need to open your mouth. Just live the good life. Acts 2 says nonsense. Pair those together. Live the good life and talk about the good life. Share the good news. So when you're taking the stand... You are to open your mouth. This is why we're to be ready in season and out of season to give a defense 
for the reason we're living our, our, our lives this way. What gave these very regular guys such confidence in the midst of a Supreme Court trial? It's the name that we've been singing about. It's the name that is above every other name. The name whose power raised this paralyzed man to leap for joy. It's the name to whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And Christian, we bear this name as well. We bear this same resemblance. Like the leaders, people ought to just look at us and go, I don't know what's up with them, but I recognize they've been with Jesus. Verse 21. It says, and when they had further threatened them. So Peter and John once again give a very gracious, honest, bold answer. And they just decide to threaten them some more. What did they do? They let them go. Finding no way to punish them because the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. Church, remain confident in Jesus no matter the trial. Let me give you two questions. There's space for it in your notes, and I'm going to put them on the screen right now. These two questions are vital and applicable for any situation you will ever face. What is God up to, and how should I respond? God, what are you doing, and how should I respond to what you're doing? God is kind in the scripture to show us repeatedly, and this finds its pinnacle in the cross, by the way, that God works in trials and persecution, not in spite of trials and persecution. Let me, let me break that down for one second. Saying that God works in spite of trials and persecution is saying something like this. God can do good even though there's bad stuff happening, even though it's hard even though it's uncomfortable. But saying that God works in trials and persecution is saying this. He uses those things on purpose. That the trials, the discomfort, the opposition are all means to what he is accomplishing. Acts says this beautifully. It paints a giant picture. Persecution opposition, discomfort, trials of both kinds are tools in the hands of carpenter God for building the early church, for spreading the message to all the world. How would the Christians have responded if there was absolutely no persecution in Jerusalem for them? Probably the same way we would respond. They would chill out and get comfortable and grow big churches and kind of keep waiting. You know, at some point, we should probably go to Samaria and Judea, but the work isn't done in Jerusalem. Plus, we've got a building project. I think God knew that. He knows that about us. So what he does, he goes, persecution. They have to spread and leave and go to the uttermost parts of the world, just like God had in his plan. By the way, church growth experts are always forever thinking and dreaming of new ways to grow their church. And here's a common reality, is that there are many blogs and books and ideas that say something like this to pastors. Maybe this is true worldwide, but it's certainly true in America. If people don't like it, or if they aren't coming, you're doing something wrong. Stop it. Change. Get the people to come. Maybe they don't say it quite that bluntly, but... They will say this nuance. If people are opposing who you are and what you are doing as a church, 
it's going to hurt their chances in coming to Jesus. Here's what we see from the book of Acts. The book of Acts church growth strategy is this. Lift up the name of Jesus no matter what and trust that God will draw all people to himself. Period. Of course people oppose it. Do people in the dark ever like a little shred of of light coming in? No. It's offensive. It's deeply offensive. Is there a way to do that out of love for the person in the dark? Absolutely. We're going to talk for two weeks before Easter about some biblical ways of how to share your faith, of how to be a witness. Sometimes it's lack of emotional intelligence. We don't go to someone in the dark, our teenager whom we love, and bring a spotlight and go, wake up! It's Monday! Uh, Pastor, there's conflict with me and my teen. Yeah, I know why. Sell the spotlight. Like, that's not how you do it. The teen needs to get up. Amen? Preach, Father. If what you are doing causes persecution, persist. Keep going. Keep looping back and checking. And God, is this still from you? Yeah, it's still from you. Done. That's all I need to hear. Faithfulness of God's people in the very midst of persecution does two things. It emboldens other believers. It awakens the faith of us, doesn't it? When we see someone being bold in the face of opposition, of course it does. And secondly, it draws unbelievers to faith. I've intentionally skipped over the results of what's going on in this scene. Go back up to verse 3 and 4. How does God use this opposition? Here it is. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. Remain confident in God in every trial. Preach the name of Jesus. He will do the drawing. 5,000 men meant a whole host of others, women and children. God worked because of the persecution. I want to wrap up with two very current events that highlight what I'm talking about. The first is this. John Muir Middle School is our closest neighbor. We're called Neighborhood Bible Church. Jesus tells us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So we've never abandoned John Muir to its own policies and decisions that are wreaking havoc in homes. Instead, we say we share a fence line and we pray and celebrate and work hard for the building up and for the good of John Muir Middle School and that whole community. Let me tell you uniquely this year, John Muir Middle School is a mess. There are horrible, hard things happening in John Muir. Here's our tiny little lens of it that we were exposed to. Early in the year, our son Eli stood up to some bullies. He did what I was very proud of. He put his body between bullies and those being bullied. I say, you ever want to fight? Fight the good fight. I didn't tell him to fight. He didn't fight. But some physical things went on with bullies toward him. And here's what went on with that. It gave occasion for us to ask these two questions. God, what are you doing in this? And how are we supposed to respond? So we've been praying that. We've been looking for that. We've gone to the leadership uh, next door. 
And over the course of months, this is still going on, what we've discovered is there's a consolidation of power by controlling the narrative. The issue hasn't been dealt with, sort of the storyline has been dealt with and tended to. And that's become very, very plain and obvious to us. A couple of weeks ago, we went to the San Jose School Unified Board meeting. You're looking for a good time. Go show up at one of these. I talked to a teacher over here next door. He said, he said, normally six people are at this meeting. There's a panel of six or seven or eight sitting up in their Supreme Court of the school district manor. And in the room, there were 20 to 30 teachers from next door, John Muir Middle School. There were another 20 to 30 parents from John Muir Middle School in that room. And what happened is this. We were given two minutes each to speak. And teacher after teacher after teacher got up and said, I've been teaching for 11 years, 14 years, 9 years. I've been here for 18 years. We've never seen anything like this year. One woman described it this way. She said, going to work feels like I'm in an abusive relationship. Heartbreaking. I was in tears. Then parent after parent after parent gets up describing, my child holds it all day because they can't use the restrooms because of the problems happening in the bathrooms. My wife got up and public spoke for two minutes. This is news. That is not my wife's love language, public speaking. She got up and shared about her son's experience, Eli. I got up and shared. I did my shortest sermon ever, two minutes. I brought the word of God to that meeting. And I spoke as a pastor next door, sharing some insights and some things I witness every day. My office window faces next door. Let me tell you the result. What is God up to? I'm not sure. But we keep doing what David does all through his life. We inquire of the Lord. We inquire of the Lord. We keep inquiring of the Lord. We pray for our enemies. We pray for the bullies. We say, guard our own heart, God, against responding poorly. We're starting to see some glimmer of what he's doing. Uh, This Tuesday, actually this Thursday, we moved it to Thursday. This Thursday, right after school, we're going to be meeting in this building with some of those very same teachers. And we're going to be dreaming up ways to improve the culture and safety of John Muir Middle School. Do you see that the occasion for us meeting in this way, by the way, in 16 years of us going and uh, seeking to collaborate and be with that school, we've had different levels of success, different ways. But we're hosting a meeting in our church to serve the community next door, and, and they initiated it. I've never really seen anything quite like this. So be praying for Thursday. Matt, myself, Lucas, some others will be meeting with some of the teachers next door. Number two, Pioneer Christian Club. Start of the school year, I reported this. This was, um, this was an L.A. Times article that came out August of 2022. Don't try and read that. But I just reported that the literal trial was going on debating whether a Christian club could exist at Pioneer High School. Now, this was litigation, law stuff happening for way long ago when Tegan actually was a freshman as a part of that club. Um, by the way, evidence, <laughs> evidence of opposition is that while this was being debated and they kept holding out saying, no, this club's allowed to meet, do you know what formed at Pioneer High School as a protest? 
the Satanic Club, complete with pentagram flyers being passed around. You are opposed in your good work. Now, uh, evidence showed that the school district had not applied its anti-discrimination policy equally to all student groups. Here's a little excerpt from the article. It said this, that they engaged in select, uh, that they engaged in selective enforcement that unfairly targeted the fellowship of Christian athletes for its religious beliefs, while letting secular groups that violated the policy go unpunished. Now, what was the specific crime of fellowship of Christian athletes that so enraged uh, things? It was the organization's sexual purity statement, and according to court records, it reads this. That the Bible teaches that the appropriate place for sexual expression is in the context of a marriage relationship. The biblical description of marriage is one man and one woman in a lifelong commitment. Hear me clearly. The Bible teaches plainly that in the last days, people will be deceived and go on deceiving others. They will be deceived and actively deceive other people. This L.A. Times article said this, the statement angered students and staff who spoke out against the club publicly, filed complaints about it with the school district, and held protests outside the group's meetings. My daughter can attest to walking through a uh, police line to to get into her club on, on, uh, on campus. One teacher described evangelical Christians as charlatans who perpetuate darkness and ignorance. And another denigrated one of his students as an idiot for empathizing with FCA members. The judge writing the opinion after the ruling said this, This is not, to put it mildly, neutral treatment of religion. More than a whiff, a stench of animus, that means hostility, against the students' religious beliefs pervades the Pioneer High School campus. Church, when we say it's hard to be a Christian in 2023 as a high school student in San Jose, we mean it. There's real daily opposition to our students. I cannot begin to tell you can't begin to tell you how proud I am of our kiddos. I'd also be happy to share with you in our personal experience some of the ways our kids' faith has grown. Our kids' character has grown and been challenged and shaped because of this. Here's the scenario we have today. We have some common, partially educated, non-fishermen students, regular people, that are gathering, wanting to gather as a club to teach and celebrate Jesus. There's opposition from leaders telling them to stop. A formal trial that may end up in the Supreme Court is being handled in a couple of weeks back in the 9th District. And we have students responding in confidence, not self-confidence, God-confidence, in the midst of trial, essentially saying this, whether it's right that we're supposed to listen to you or to God, you must be the judge of that. As for us, We can't help but speak. That's what's currently going on. And in just a moment, we actually have Rigo 
his wife Vicky and um, Jacob and, and Sadie and Cassie are two of the uh, leaders of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes Club. We're going to pray over them um, right now as a church. But right before we do, what I want to do is this. I want to look at and show you the response of Peter and John in the early church. Because it's so instructive um, for, for us as well. Look at Acts chapter 4, 23, so you know I'm not making this up. What is God up to? How should I respond? It says, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said... And what it goes on to describe is a prayer. They had a prayer meeting. Sadly, many Christians call prayer meetings before the trial, in the middle of the trial, but forget to call a prayer meeting after the trial and celebrate their release. Celebrate that they still have their health and vitality and vocal cords to keep preaching boldly. What they pray is so instructive. I'm not going to take time to read it all, but they began with their confidence in God. Sovereign God, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. What does sovereignty mean? It means complete control. Our prayers start with confidence in God. Then they pray the scriptures back to God. Verse 25, who through the mouth of David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Finally, they pray their own prayer request. What's their prayer request? And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's so instructive what they don't pray for. They don't call down fire and brimstone to nail those Sanhedrin. They don't pray for vindication of their good name that now has been drugged through the mud. They don't pray for no more discomfort. God, that was really hard and scary. They were really mad at us. Please, no more suffering. They don't pray for any of that. Wow, they pray for boldness to continue to speak, come what may. They actually pray for what what we see with the rest of the chapter, which we won't take time for, but they pray for their community. And you know what's cool? The earth rumbles a hearty amen. <laughs> the place where they were was shaken. As all of creation is like, yes, that's what it's about. We're not going to take time to do it, but the rest of the chapter goes on to recount this living in beautiful community, sacrificial, joyful community that accompanies their bold witness. Let me have the band come up and let me have the FCA crew come up and Matt's going to uh, pray over them as well. And as we do, I just leave you with this picture. This is our series picture for the book of Acts. How do we activate? What are we supposed to be doing about it? Well, the way that we respond, it really depends on what God is up to. Here, you guys take, get in the middle here. Some current events are to pray next door. Some current events are to pray over this group and the trial happening within a couple of weeks. Honestly, we can't lose. Talk to Rigo afterwards, but we can't lose. If we win or lose this this court hearing, 
it's yay God. And if we win or lo- if we lose it and it goes to the Supreme Court, it's yay God again. It's, it's just like Acts 4. We don't even know how to punish these guys. I think they're just going to keep talking and loving. And that's what we hope for. Church, way beyond trials and school districts, though, are your personal trials and the trials of people who raise the hands in, in here. The way you think about trials and suffering is going to determine what you do in trials and suffering. We did a whole sermon on that in our second Timothy series. Go back and listen to that. Go back and investigate that. God, what are you up to? And how do you want me to respond? 